Okay, friends, welcome to A History of the Christian Church. Today, we're going to look at the father of Latin theology, Tertullian. Born round about 155 AD, died about 220. I do hope you find today's episode helpful in widening your understanding of the early days of the Christian Church. And can I remind you that if you're here for the first time, then why not click on the subscribe button and that way you need never miss another episode when it's posted. So thanks for joining me and I hope you find today's episode educational and informative. Thanks for being here. Okay, people, today we're looking at this character called Tertullian. The father of Latin theology is the moniker given to him by many. Born around about approximately 155 AD, he lived until just into the 3rd century. So I'd like to begin by just giving you a short potted biography before we look into his writings, his teachings, his theology, etc. Quintus Septimus Florens Tertullian, better known just as Tertullian, was born around the year 155 to 160 at Carthage, which is modern Tunis. He was born into a pagan Roman family. He was educated in rhetoric and in law. It is possible that he lived for a time at Rome and practiced there as a lawyer. Sometime before the year 197, he became a Christian and for the remainder of his life he wrote extensively as an advocate for the Christian faith. He was the first Christian author to produce an extensive body of Latin Christian literature. He was an early Christian apologist and an activist against heresy, including the contemporary form of Christian Gnosticism that was appearing at that time. Tertullian has been called both the father of Latin Christianity and the founder of Western theology. Whether both those monikers fit him, I'll let you be the judge of that. Tertullian originated new theological concepts and advanced the development of the early church's doctrine. He is perhaps most famous for being the first writer in Latin known to have used the term Trinity, Latin Trinitas. Scant reliable evidence exists regarding Tertullian's life, most knowledge comes from his passing references to his own life in his own writings. Roman Africa was famous as the home for many great orators and that influence can definitely be seen in his writing style. He was a scholar who had an excellent education behind him and he wrote at least three books in Greek. In them he refers to himself but none of those books are actually available today, only quotations from those books or references by others. Tertullian's ethnicity has also been questioned. He actually referred to himself as Punicium into Romanus, literally translated as a Punic living among the Romans. In his book, De Palio, he actually claimed Africa as his home. According to church tradition, Tertullian was raised in Carthage and was thought to be the son of a Roman centurion. Tertullian has been stated to have been a trained lawyer and an ordained priest. These assertions rely on the accounts of Eusebius of Caesarea in what is called his early history of the church. 
Jerome claimed that Tertullian's father held the position of the centurion and was actually what was referred to as a sort of aide-de-camp in the Roman army in Africa. Tertullian is thought to have been through training as a lawyer and that is based on his frequent use of legal illustrations in his writing, although it could be said that his knowledge of Roman law in his writing only demonstrated a level of knowledge that does not exceed what would have been expected from a well-educated middle-class Roman with a good standard of education in rhetoric and law. Finally, any idea of Tertullian actually being a priest is also open to question. In the writings of his we still have today, he never describes himself as being ordained in the church and seemed to position himself among the laity. His conversion to Christianity is believed to have taken place as late as between 197 or 198, but its immediate background are unknown, except as they're speculated about in his writings. It seems reasonable to suggest that this event must have been sudden and decisive, a transformation, if you like, as he writes that he could not imagine a truly Christian life without such a conscious breach. In other words, what he described as a radical act of conversion. Christians are made, not born, he says in Apology, chapter 18. Two of his books are written to his wife, confirming that he was indeed married and had a Christian wife. At first he supported the mainstream church, but sometimes before 207 AD he became disillusioned with the local church authorities and began to speak in favour of a sect called Montanism. Montanism, or the New Prophecy as its supporters called it, began around 170 AD when Montanus and two women began to prophesy in Phrygia in modern Turkey. They taught the imminent end of the world and the need for greater austerity in the light of this fact. They taught things like no more marriage, longer fasting, and that believers should not flight from any impending martyrdom, contrary, in effect, to that which was Jesus' advice in chapter 10, verse 23. At first the leaders of the Catholic Church were not sure how to handle this new movement, but eventually there was a complete parting of the ways, and the Phrygian heresy, as it was to be called, was rejected. And Tertullian himself, shortly after, then split with the Montanists and followed, in effect, his own path. There's no evidence until much later tradition that Tertullian ever completely left the mainstream universal church as perceived at that time, or founded or joined any other group. He did become a critic of the Catholic Church at that time and its theology, and for a period he certainly was a defender of what Montanism appeared to say. Jerome says Tertullian lived to an old age. We can see from his works he published that Tertullian became a teacher of the Cyprian Church and was in fact a predecessor of Augustine, who in turn became the chief founder of what has been come to be known by many as Latin theology. Tertullian was the first self-declared Christian, important Christian, to write in Latin, which, as I said, led many of to credit him as both the father of Latin and Western theological schools of thought. Together with Oregon, he was one of the two greatest Christian writers of the 2nd and 3rd century. Indeed, he was one of the greatest Latin writers ever, and even it is said that pagans of his day used to read his work simply to enjoy the style. 
As a 5th century writer put it, almost every word he uttered was an epigram, and every sentence was a victory. Or, as a modern author I read said, he possesses an ability rare amongst early church theologians, in that he seems incapable of being dull. Tertullian's writing was always that of an advocate, defending his own position and attacking his rivals, and this he did with the full range of legal and rhetorical skills that were held to his disposal. He has been described as an apologist who has never apologized, and was credited with the intellectual annihilation of some of his lesser opponents. This, perhaps, is not a fair description of what he did, because, in fairness, it could be said he was never vindictive or dishonest, he was just completely convinced of the righteousness of his cause, and he sincerely sought to simply argue his case and dismantle that of his opponents as best he could. Just over 30 works exist today, with fragments of some more. Some 15 works in Latin or Greek are said to have been lost. Tertullian's writing cover the whole theological realm of the time, apologetics against paganism, Judaism, speeches, morality pieces. He at time argues for the whole recognition of human life being put solely on a Christian basis. They also, as an aside, of course, give a picture of the religious life and thought of the time, which is of great interest still to church historians today. The order in which these writings were done is actually difficult to fix with any certainty. But as I say, he wrote more than 30 works which fall into three main groups. Let's just consider those groups for a moment. The first could be said to be his apologetic works. The most famous of these is simply called Apology, and many would say he was continuing the work of the second century apologists such as Justin, but also some would say with far greater brilliance. He argued with all his ability and legal skills against the injustice of condemning believers to death simply for being Christians. In Apology 37 he writes, We are but of yesterday, and we have filled your places, cities, islands, forts, towns, marketplaces, the very camp tribes, companies, palaces, and even the Senate Forum. We have left nowhere to you except the temples of your gods. The Apologeticus was actually addressed to the Roman magistrates, and it is a powerful defence of Christianity and the Christians against the incoming reproaches of the pagans, persecution one might say, and this is an important legacy of the ancient church, proclaiming the principle of what we today call freedom of religion as an inalienable human right and demanding a fair trial for Christians before any are condemned to death. The name of a faction is deserved, but not by Christians, he writes, but by those who conspire to slander the good and virtuous men who cry out against innocent blood. They justify their enmity by their groundless plea that the Christians are the cause of every public disaster, of every affliction visited upon the people. If the Tiber River rises to the city walls, or the Nile does not rise in the fields, if the heavens stay still or the earth moves, if there is a famine or a plague, the cry is at once the Christians to the lions. Tertullian was also the first to disapprove charges that Christians sacrificed infants at the celebration of the Lord's Supper and committed incest. 
he pointed out to the commissions of such crimes were actually the purview of the pagan world, and proved that by referring to the writings of a Roman historian called Pliny the Younger, saying that Christians had in fact pledged themselves not to commit murder, adultery, or other such crimes. Writing in Apology 50, he says, Your cruelty against us does not profit you, however exquisite. Instead, it tempts people to us. As often as you mow down, the more we grow in number. The blood of the Christians is the seed of the church. The very obstinacy you criticize teaches that for us. For who, upon seeing it, is not excited to inquire what lies behind it, and who, having inquired about it, does not embrace our faith? So he offers here the inhumanity of the existing pagan customs, and he argues that the pagan gods did not even exist. Therefore, it is not possible for Christians to offend such ideas. He intellectually argues that in fact the pagan gods cannot possibly exist, so therefore it must not be possible for Christians to offend such gods or even such ideas. He says that although Christians will not engage in the foolish worship of the emperors, they do better than that, he says, they are willing to pray for them. In another of his apologetic works, De Prescriptione, he develops the fundamental idea that in a dispute between the church and a separating party, the whole burden of proof must lie with the latter, as he argued the church is in possession of the Holy Scriptures, combined with an unbroken apostolic tradition, and that, he says, by very existence those two things must be a guarantee of its truth. Writing in the same work, he says, As there are heretics that cannot be true Christians, that has not been questioned. They have no right to be to the Christian scriptures. We can fairly ask them, Who are you? When and whence did you come? As you are indeed none of mine, then what are you doing with my property? Indeed, Marcion, what right have you to use my word? By whose permission? Valentina? Are you diverting the streams of my fountain? And by what power of palace are you removing my landmarks? This is my property. I am the heir of the apostles. That's Prescription of Heretics, chapter 37. Moving on to his dogmatic and theoretical theological works, Tertullian, along with Irenaeus, was a major opponent of this rising sect of Gnosticism. He wrote a number of treaties against it, the best knowing being his prescription of heretics. He used the argument, as Irenaeus did, but characteristically took these arguments further. However, the argument did not prevent him from becoming sharply critical of what we would call the Catholic Church in his later years. His longest work was the five books against Marcion. Marcion was the greatest of the second century heretics. He had his own distinctive blend of Gnosticism, and he combined it with Paul. It was a sort of version of Pauline Christianity. Written in 207 and 208, it is the most comprehensive and elaborate of his polemical works, invaluable for understanding the earliest Christian views of Gnosticism. Tertullian advises the postponement of baptism of little children and the unmarried, he argues that although it may have been customary to baptize infants with sponsors speaking in their behalf, he actually recommended delaying it. 
He argued that an infant ran the risk of growing up and then falling into sin, which could cause them to lose their salvation if they had been baptized as infants. Contrary to the early North African Syrian baptismal doctrine and practice, Tertullian describes baptism as a cleansing and a preparation process which precedes the reception of the Holy Spirit post-baptismal. Tertullian was also strongly critical of Greek philosophy, actually viewing it as the parent of heresy, taking a stronger view against it than many who preceded him. He emphasized the inconsistent nature of the Greek proto-faiths and the contrast between Christianity and philosophy that lay at its core. Tertullian would actually attack the use of Greek philosophy in Christian theology, for Tertullian philosophy actually supported religious idolatry and heresy. He believed that many people were led down a path towards heresy because of too heavily relying on the philosophical sources of the time. Tertullian famously stated, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? He would appeal to elements in Greek philosophy, sympathetic to his own view as Christianity, as did of course the other apologists of that era, and credit his own debt to philosophy and to Stoicism in particular. Many would say that debt was even greater than he even himself perhaps realised. But he also talked of the absurdity of belief in the Greek system and how it could not be taken too literally to truly lead one to a point of devoting your life to it, showing it lacked a coherence of belief and the inconsistency of those who adhered to it or who stood as opponents against them. Writing in his description of heretics, chapter 7, he says, He, Paul, has been in Athens, and he has in his interviews with the philosophers become acquainted with that human wisdom which pretends to know the truth. In fact, it only corrupts and it is divided, and it itself divided into its own multiple heresies by the variety of its mutually hostile sects. What indeed has Athens to do with Jerusalem? What concord is there between the academy and the church? What have the heretics to have to do with the Christians? And writing in the Flesh of Christ, chapter 5, he states his principle that the Son of God was crucified. I am not ashamed because it was shameful. The Son of God dies. The Son of God died. It is credible because it is absurd. He was buried and rose again. It is certain because it is impossible. Tertullian also wrote against this rising sect, monarchianism. The monarchians stressed the monarchy or what we would call the sole rule of God. They were, therefore were very strict monotheists. They circumvented any doctrine of the Trinity by the ingenious idea that the Father is the Son, is the Holy Spirit. Much as I might say I am one person who functions as both a father and a husband and a podcaster in three different roles. The Father, Son and Holy Spirit, they said, are three different names for the same being performing three different roles, not names for three distinct beings, a bit like an actor on a stage betraying three characters within a play. Tertullian answered them by saying they managed two pieces of the devil's business in this teaching. They drove out prophecy and they brought in heresy. They put to flight the Holy Spirit, he said, by rejecting the prophecy of the likes of the Montanists, and they crucified the Father by saying the Son was the Father. 
Tertullian, in answering this perspective, came up with the famous phrase that God is one substance in three persons. He coined the term, a term which has been later used frequently in many later definitions of doctrines and creeds about the Trinity and the Incarnation of God. His work was a major step forward in understanding these doctrines. Then finally, his practical works. Writing on repentance, his thinking left no room for the opportunity for a second repentance for serious sins committed after baptism. But in his later massive work, titled Modesty, he took an even stricter line in opposition to recent announcements by the then Bishop of Cartledge. For Tertullian, discipline always took precedence over forgiveness. Indeed, one recent interpreter has charged that on this issue he was theologically almost Jewish in perspective. So let's take a little while and give you a basic view, uh, overview of Tertullian's theology on various issues. First of all, his theology of the church. Tertullian interpreted that in Matthew chapter 16 verses 18 and 19 that the rock is referring to Peter himself. For Tertullian, Peter is the type of the one church and its origins, and that church is now present in a variety of local churches at that time. But others, including later reformers, said that the passage, when taken this way, those two verses were taken out of context of the preceding verses. In fact, the keys to the kingdom could be found in the foundations of the truth of the gospel itself, upon which subsequent godly communities could be built. If in fact we read Matthew sixteen seventeen to 19 it says this, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Tertullian also believed that the power to bind and unbind had passed from Peter to the apostles and the prophets, not the bishops. Tertullian was probably drawn for a period to Montanism because of its strict moral standards. Tertullian believed that the church was beginning to forsake the Christian way of life and was in fact entering a path leading to destruction. Montanism in North Africa seems to have been a counter-reaction against this creeping secularism. The form of Montanism in North Africa seems to have differed in views from that of Montanus himself, and thus the North African Montanists believed the bishops to be the true successors of the apostles. Because they held in tension and still continued to view the New Testament to be the supreme authority on Christianity, and they did not deny many of the mainstream doctrines of the Church, they were never considered wholly not orthodox. In fact, Tertullian mocked Pope Galictus when he challenged him on the Church forgiving capital sinners and letting them back into the Church. This was because Tertullian believed that people who had committed grave sins, such as sorcery, fornication, outside marriage, and murder should not be let back inside the church again. As one sympathetic to the Montanist view, Tertullian attacked the church authorities as more interested in their own political power, invested in the organisation of the religious structure, than they were in listening to the Holy Spirit. 
Tertullian's criticism of church authority has been compared by many to a sort of proto-Protestant Reformation. Tertullian's view of marriage is also influenced because that too was heavily influenced by Montanism. In his book, An Exhortation to Chastity, it can be seen that Tertullian had a huge shift in his views on marriage after aligning with these Montanists. Many would say, because of this, he can be rightly called the father of what we today call Catholic guilt. He had previously held marriage to be fundamentally good, but after his realignment with this group, he denied its goodness. Tertullian argued that marriage is considered to be good only when it is compared with the greatest of other sexual evils. In fact, Tertullian argued that before the coming of Christ, the command to reproduce was in fact a prophetic sign pointing to the coming of the church, and after it came, the command was superseded. Tertullian, in fact, believed that lust for one's wife and for another woman were essentially the same thing, so that marital desire was similar in route to adulterous desire. Tertullian believed that sex, even inside marriage, would disrupt the Christian life, and that abstinence was the best way to achieve the clarity of focus in the spiritual development of the soul. Tertullian's view on sex would be said to later influence much of the Western Church for centuries to come. In fact, he pretty much saw sexual relationships as a barrier that stopped one developing a close relationship with God and spiritual maturity. So what about Tertullian's view of Holy Scripture? Well, in his day, he did not have a specific list, a closed canon, if you like, of Scripture. However, we see him quote from 1 John, 1 Peter, Jude, Revelation, the Pauline epistles, and all four of the Gospel accounts. He also quotes from most of the Old Testament books, including many what are called deuterocanonical books. However, he never referenced the book of Chronicles, Ruth, Esther, or 2nd and 3rd John. He also defended the pre-New Testament era book of Enoch, and he believed that book was omitted by the Jews from the canon. He believed that the epistle to the Hebrews was written by Barnabas, a view that has in fact fallen into favour with some modern Bible experts today. But we can't be clear that for Tertullian scripture was indeed authoritative. He used the scriptures as his primary source in almost every chapter of every work he ever produced. He very rarely quoted from anything else. He seemed to prioritise the authority of scripture above all other sources. When interpreting scripture, Tertullian would occasionally recognise passages as allegorical and symbolic, not literal, while in other places he would support a wholly literal interpretation. Tertullian would especially use allegorical interpretations when it came to dealing with messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. Tertullian's view of interpretation also included the belief in the simplicity, the straightforwardness of Scripture. He believed that the Scriptures often interpreted themselves. Tertullian denied ideas that would later come into the Church, like the perpetual virginity of Mary, and he also believed that Mary herself had imperfections, thus denying any theology of sinfulness. Tertullian held to an early theology of what we might call a priesthood of all believers, 
and that the distinction of the clergy and the laity was only relevant in terms of church governance and ecclesiastical institutions. Thus he believed, in the absence of an ordained priest, he believed that it was acceptable for the laity to function to all intents and purposes as priests, ministering the blessings and ordinances of God. Petullian's view of angels and demons was very heavily influenced by his accepting of the Book of Enoch as Holy Scripture. Tertullian held that the Nephilim were born out of the fallen angels who mingled with human women and had sexual relationship with them. He also believed that because of the actions of the Watchers, as described in the Book of Enoch, men would later judge the fallen angels. He believed that angels were in fact inferior to humans in the sense that they were not created in the image of God. He believed that angels are imperceptible to our senses, however they may choose on occasion to take on human form or indeed to what we would today call shapeshift. Tertullian also believed in historic premillennialism, that being that Christians would go through a period of tribulation to be followed by a literal 1,000 year reign with Christ. Where Tertullian's thinking probably has influenced the church most is in its view of moral principles. Tertullian was a determined advocate of strict discipline and his code of practice would seem astir by many today. And like many of the North African Church Fathers, he was one of the leading representatives of the rigorous elements within the early Church. These views may have led him in the end to have that period when he had seemed to adopt Montanism with its aesthetic rigour and its belief in the continuance of the prophetic gifts. He declared a Christian should abstain from things like theatre and attending the amphitheatre. He said these pagan religious rites were applied and that the names of pagan dignities and divinities, he claimed that there pagan religious rites were applied and that the names of pagan divinities were invoked. He also said that any precepts of modesty, purity and humanity were ignored and set aside on such occasions and there was no place should be offered to onlookers and there were no place where onlookers could expect to see the cultivation of Christian grace by participating in such things. He also said that women should set aside their gold and precious stone as ornaments and virgins should conform to the view of St. Paul for women to keep themselves strictly veiled, particularly in church and community situations. He actually praised the unmarried state as the highest. He even labelled second marriage as a type of adultery. Tertullian himself resolved never to marry again and no one else should remarry, and this eventually led him to break with Rome because the Orthodox Church refused to follow him in this perspective. Tertullian, in modern days, has obviously been criticised as misogynistic because he believed that the judgment of God upon this and sex lives on the age that he lived in, and the fact that participating in that means that, that by necessity the guilt of God should live on in the lives of those people. So in summary, Tertullian remains an influential Christian theologian and apologist from the very earliest church period and made several enduring contributions to the modern Christian church through his life and belief. In summary, I'd just like to give you 
a perspective of the six main areas I think his influence remains. First of all, the development of systematic theology. Tertullian's theological writings, such as his formulation of the doctrine of the Trinity, have had a lasting impact of Christian theology to this day. His precise articulation of core Christian beliefs continue to inform the doctrines of many Christian denominations to this day. His apologetic writings and his defense of Christianity against contemporary criticisms lay the groundwork for the whole field of Christian apologetics. His rigorous defense of the faith provided a model for future apologists to come, helping to strengthen the intellectual foundations of Christianity. Thirdly, the ethical and moral emphasis he put on living the Christian life. Tertullian's emphasis on moral, living and ethical conduct has introduced the whole perspective of Christian ethics throughout history. His writings on issues such as marriage, humility, martyrdom, although problematic for many in this age, continue to inspire believers to try and attempt to live lives of virtue and integrity. In terms of church authority, Tertullian's writing on church leadership and ecclesiastical structure contributed certainly to the development of a hierarchical organization within the Christian church. His thoughts, however, on the roles of clergy and laity helped shape the institutional structure of the church to this day, well, for good and for ill, some would say. In terms of his devotional writing, Tertullian's spiritual writings, including as he did, writing prayers and devotional meditations continue to inspire Christians today in their personal spiritual journeys. His reflections on prayer, repentance and the Christian life offer a template as well as perhaps some timeless wisdom for believers to seek a deeper relationship with God and they have a way set template for the whole idea of devotional thinking and meditating on the Word of God to this day. So there we have it. Tertullian's life and his beliefs have had a lasting impact on the modern Christian church, shaping its theology, ethics, apologetics, even church structure and devotional practices that Christians exhibit today. His contributions continue to affect the faith of Christians around the world today. Like all of these church fathers, we shouldn't view them as perfect. We shouldn't view anything they said or did as gospel itself. They were ordinary people like you and I, perhaps some with extraordinarily talents, whose thinking and ideas have survived to this day. And that is perhaps helpful in our understanding of the place of modern Christianity in the world today. Thanks for joining me. Okay, friends, that's it for today, today's episode. I do hope you find it interesting and maybe helpful. This is aimed at a beginner's view, uh, an understanding of the overall history of the Christian church. If you're finding this uh, series helpful, 
and would like to see more episodes appear, then why not just reach out to me via Patreon, and that way you can support this ministry and you'll get notification of every new episode as it comes. You can also do that by simply subscribing to this podcast wherever you get your podcast from, and that way you shouldn't miss another episode, as and when I have time to post one. So thanks for being with me today, for joining me on this journey, and I do hope I'll see you back here again very soon on my history of the Christian Church. 2,000 years of Christian thought. Thanks for joining me today. Bye-bye for now.